listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast, a podcast all about your health and wellness issues that affect you every day. We want to educate, entertain, and maybe make you giggle a little along the way. No annoying statistics or jargon here, just information you can use every day to be healthier, happier, and less boring. All right, here's your host, OBGYN Dr. Ron Eaker. Hey, wow, VIPers, and welcome to another edition of Thirsty Thursday. We're glad you're with us today. Uh, we've got a real special, uh, what I love to do is question and answer session. You know, that has become one of my favorite things to do because it really gives me a tone and gives me an understanding of where you're at and what's on your mind and, you know, what's trickling around in the brain up there. Now, it's great to be with you, and thank you so much for all those who wrote in questions and really going to get to all of those tonight and they cover a broad category some of them related to COVID-19 some of them related to just general women's health and also if you have a question that something comes to you as we're going through this just write it in the message there and I'll get it and if we have time I'll love to interact with those but I do I wanted to give preference to the folks who took the time to write in beforehand and ask their questions so we're going to do that. So I appreciate you being with us. And then uh, towards the end, I want to give you my review, my impression of what has become a viral sensation, literally. I mean, it's, it's about a virus that's gone viral. This uh, vignette, uh, a, about a 23, 24-minute video called Plandemic. And essentially, it is a promo for an upcoming full-length feature film. And we'll get to that in just a bit. I want to give you my thoughts on that and some general observations about how you need to view some of the stuff that's coming at you just at steamroller pace. So let's just jump on into the questions and see if we can't give you some words of wisdom, some insight, and some excellent ideas about how to stay healthy in this crazy time. First question came in, and, and I'm not going to mention any names. You know who you are, but I just just in, just for anonymity's sake and, and professionalism, I won't mention any names. So, But there's a question about asking about how long to stay out of work if someone has an immune deficiency. And I basically kind of lump that into anyone in a high-risk group. Now, who's in a high-risk group from COVID-19? We've talked about this a lot, and most of you already know this, but anyone over 65, not there yet, not there yet, getting close, not there yet, but anyone over 65, anyone with a comorbidity, in other words, you could be 30, and if you've got bad hypertension or diabetes, you're in a higher-risk group. So any kind of comorbidity that limits your health, cancer, cancer chemotherapy, immune deficiencies such as this particular question. Uh, we know that being overweight is a big comorbidity. In fact, it's the number one predictor of problems in people under the age of 50 that develop complications second to COVID-19. So being overweight is a huge uh, complication secondary to this problem. So those are the folks that are in this broad swath that we'll call high risk. And high risk just means that you're more likely to get really dog sick if you catch this. 
Now, this is the important thing to contextualize. Even those folks in high-risk categories oftentimes do fine if they catch this virus. Not everybody in this high-risk category that catches the virus gets on a ventilator by a long shot. It's important to contextualize this at every twist and every turn. You've got to understand that. But definitely, when you look at deaths, the majority of deaths occur in these people in high-risk categories. In fact, the majority of deaths occur in people over 80, people who have diabetes, hypertension, who are elderly, who have COPD, who have other manifestations. Yes, yes. And don't write in saying, well, I heard about this 25-year-old. Yes, there are exceptions. And unfortunately, there are people who fall out of those categories who have died from this virus. There's no question about that. That's legitimate. And I get it and I understand. But when you put it in the perspective of the big picture, that's a very small percentage. And the reality is, even those people had some underlying issue in many instances. So uh, really to get to the question is, is this person uh, also mentioned that, that she had asthma, which again, any kind of respiratory illness like asthma does put you at increased risk. So how long should this person continue to stay out of work? Well, again, like most of these issues, it's very individualized. This person has a particular immune deficiency called IgA deficient. And we've heard, we've talked about testing for whether you're immune or not and how that tests for antibodies like IgG and IgM. Well, IgA is one of those antibodies and it's particularly important because it attaches to, it's produced in mucus and it's attached to lung cells. So people who have IgA deficiency tend to have more of a risk of respiratory illnesses. However, the majority of people who have that problem, like the majority of people who get ill, do, do okay. They, the majority of people that have that particular immune deficiency uh, actually don't really get sick that often. Some do. It's very individualized. So my recommendations is anybody in these high-risk categories, whether it's age-based or morbidity, you've just got to be more careful than the general public just because you're at greater risk. So it, it, my suggestion is to look at your individual situation, see what, what is your work setting. Are you fine to work from home? Is that even possible? If it is, continue doing that. Uh, certainly, it might be worth at some point getting tested to see if you have any antibodies because you may have been one of those asymptomatic carriers, but you just got to be extra careful. That's the bottom line. If you're in a high-risk category, you just got to wear a mask. You've got to physical uh, isolate. Remember, we don't socially isolate here. We socially interact. We physically isolate. Two different things. So physically isolate. Just be smart about it. I mean, this is all temporary. This is going to go away. It may not be for six months, or, but it's going to go away. And when you think about the risks versus the benefits, if you're in a high-risk category, just, just suck it up. I mean, I, 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 there's no better way to say it. And just say for your own health and the benefit of those around you and those that love you that want you to still be around, uh, you just got to, to do what it takes. And unfortunately, uh, a immune deficiency puts you in a high-risk category. Got a, several questions about urinary problems, and boy, I know that's common. I mean, I've been doing this 30 years, and I know urinary complaints with women are extremely common and a real problem for a lot of folks, and they really kind of fall into two categories, and that actually is where these two questions came from. One is 
relating to urinary tract infection, and the other is relating to urinary incontinence. So we'll address the first one. The first one was a question about, uh, and, and I, I could just read through the, the, the way the question was written, and, and I wish I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put in the emotion as to why, as to how the question was written. You, you can't write with emotion unless you put emojis in there, but I know, I know this is actually how she was writing it. Why in the devil do women get so many dead gum urinary tract infections? That's exactly the way it came across, and she's exactly right. Why do women get so many urinary tract infections? Well, it comes down to a lot of it is anatomy. The urethra, the tube from the bladder to the outside, is only about three or four centimeters, a couple of inches. That's a very short distance for all these little bacteria that normally live in the vaginal canal to just crawl up there and just latch onto the bladder and say, we're going to just have a sex party and reproduce and make all kind of other little bacterias and cause an infection. So part of it is anatomy. Part of it is just the physical likelihood because the urethra, the tube from the bladder to the outside is normally sterile. Bacteria normally doesn't live there. In the vagina, Bacteria is everywhere. I mean, just a routine culture of the vaginal canal would give you a, a, what we call a normal bacteria flora. Uh, even yeast is normal there. It's only when yeast overgrows that you get the symptoms of a yeast infection. But the vaginal canal is, it's, it's a, uh, how, how do you say this? How do you say this nicely? It's a, uh, it's a plethora of bacteria. It's a bacteria funhouse, And it's real easy for that bacteria to crawl up that little urethra. One of the most common initiators of urinary tract infections in women is intercourse, is sex. Because if you think about what goes on, don't think too hard. You're watching this right now. You don't need to be thinking about that too hard. But if you think about what's going on, it's not too hard to imagine how easy it is for bacteria to get introduced into that urethra uh, while you're in the throngs of passionate embraces, picking some very good words tonight. But the bottom line is it's very common for women sometimes to get urinary tract infections after intercourse. Urinating afterwards, uh, there are some people when this is so frequent that we actually give them a single dose prophylactic antibiotic to help prevent that. The old timey word for that is honeymoon cystitis. And that was assuming, <laughs> this shows how old I am. This goes back way back in the annals of history when some people actually began sexual activity on their wedding night and then they found out they liked it and they kept on doing it. That probably is, is almost the exception rather than the rule these days. But what that initiated was this whole terminology of honeymoon cystitis such that a increase in sexual activity almost always triggered symptoms of a bladder infection because of the anatomy and because of this easy introduction of bacteria. Now, there are a million other reasons for urinary tract infections, and we could spend hours on that. How'd you like to spend hours on a Thursday evening before dinner talking about urinary tract infections? So just let it be said that a lot of it's anatomy. There's things you can do, you know, it, 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 as I said, after intercourse, if you're constantly creating these, these symptoms, you can, and there, let me mention this. There are other things that are similar to urinary tract infections, frequency, urgency, burning, pain, and they might not be urinary tract infections. 
They may be this overactive bladder or interstitial cystitis. And that's why it's really important when you have the symptoms to get checked. You know, we're, we're nice and we people call in and say, I know I have a bladder infection. I've had a couple of zillion of them. I know exactly what they are. And we're nice people. We're sweet and we don't want everybody to have to come in. And so we'll call in an antibiotic. That's probably technically not the best thing to do because you really need to come in and let us look at the urine and make sure that that's truly what it is because there are other things that can do that that antibiotics will do nothing for in fact i see people in the office who'll come in and they've 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 seen they've been treated time and time again they said i got i had 12 urinary tract infections last year and this is driving me crazy and said well how many times did you come in and have it looked at well none i just called because i knew what it is dadgummit so just call it in and shut up and, of course, we're dumb enough to do it. And the reality is they had this other condition, this interstitial cystitis, which was just never diagnosed because folks never really got it appropriately evaluated. So my, the lesson is if you're having frequent urinary tract infections, please get checked and make sure that that's indeed what it is. The second question was urinary incontinence. And there's basically two types of urinary incontinence. There's what we call stress incontinence, and that's not when, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, and you lose your urine. No, no, no. Stress incontinence means when you cough or sneeze and there's an increased pressure on the bladder and the positioning of the bladder changes, and that causes loss of urine. So any kind of bearing down, coughing, sneezing, laughing, that's when you lose urine. That's called stress incontinence. Uh, the other is called detrusor instability or overactive bladder, and that's where the bladder muscle itself just spasms. It just spasms. It's just, no, just not a nice organ, and it just squeezes down, and that's when urine comes out. And that can happen anytime. Sometimes people report when they turn on water, they spasm sometimes just standing up, or sometimes nothing else happens. It just, it just happens and you get loss of urine. Well, those are treated very differently. Those are very different things, and sometimes you have to do surgery, Sometimes you can treat it medically. Sometimes it's a combination of both. So again, it's important to be able to make that distinction. And there's a lot of ways we can make that distinction. There's tests we can do. There's procedures we can look at. And we can separate out what is what and really give you good advice about. But don't just ignore it. A lot of women think, oh, well, just, that's what happens when I get to be 50 is I just start peeing on myself. That's just, that's just the way my mom said it and my grandmom said it and my grand-grandmom said it. But no, that's not the case. We have some things we can do about that. So don't just accept it uh, and keep spending half the budget of Swaziland on the pens. Uh, you, you actually can do something about it. So just, just remember that bladder leakage is not normal. It's common, but it's not normal. All right. This was a great question, and I really, really wanted to address this because I find that there's probably a whole lot of folks out there who are in this situation. This is uh, somebody who's taking care of an elderly parent, and they're beginning to notice some memory loss and some forgetfulness, and they're just wondering what exactly to do about that. And it it really is a difficult scenario oftentimes, and, and I find there's two, two situations. One is if you're not actually with them a lot, and maybe you visit uh, once a month or you see them once every six months, whatever your situation is, and it becomes pretty evident. In, it's like when you around your kids all the time. You don't notice them growing, but then the grandparents come over and they hadn't seen them in half a year, and it's like, oh my gosh, little Sally has little boobies now. It's incredible. This is crazy. But 
the same thing happens here when you've got someone who's a caregiver and they're with the person all the time. They may not notice as subtly uh, changes as someone who maybe hasn't seen them as much. Regardless, if you get to a place where you're noticing that uh, memory is gone, especially short-term memory, people with early Alzheimer's, senile dementia, they tend to retain a lot of the past memories. They can sit and tell you what happened back in World War II, but they can't really tell you much about yesterday. And that's when I talk, when I say memory problems, I'm talking about more recent memory. Uh, there was a, a incidence where uh, this particular person noticed that their mom had not paid bills and they usually were very fastidious about that. So what do you do about that? Well, the first thing is you've got to address that. I mean, it's, it's, I know it's a sensitive subject and I know it sometimes is difficult when it's apparent and all of a sudden the roles are somewhat reversed, especially if it's not very advanced, uh, where you really need to sit down and have that conversation. And, and I, I get that. I understand that. Uh, I've, I've been in that situation. I've uh, been in that situation with, with in, in a work setting even. And it's always a difficult conversation, but it's always worse if you continue to delay it if it needs to have that, if you need to have that discussion. And that can be simply a matter of saying, I've noticed that, again, the bills didn't get paid last month or you, you, you're always had, had been really sharp and I, I just noticed that there's some changes here and I'd love to get, get things checked out because there, and this is the way I would approach it, there's things that can be done, especially if it's due to medical issues, for example. Sometimes when diabetes is not well controlled, people can have some cognition issues that may be thought or things like senile dementia or Alzheimer's, but the reality is if their sugars were under better control, their cognition and their thinking would be under better control. So the reality is, yes, you need to have a good medical exam to see are there other things that are fixable that could kind of get you back to yourself. And that's a, that's a non-threatening way of approaching it. And then you, you go to the primary care and you make sure they understand your concerns. You make sure that they're aware of that because oftentimes the person themselves really can't relate that. They are not as introspective and they're not going to be able to relate that. And there's a lot of things that primary care can do. First of all, they can also, they can check obviously their uh, medical issues and there's some very simple assessments that they can do to do some preliminary testing just to get a sense of some of the changes that may be going on. There is a wonderful service here in Georgia called the Georgia Memory Net. And I'm gonna put the link to that on right above the video here so you'll have access to that. They are a, a, a nonprofit group that works with primary care physicians to help identify people who are having memory issues, possibly senile dementia issues, early Alzheimer's issues, and they are a tremendous resource. What they'll do is they'll, once they're contacted by the primary care, say there's, oh yeah, there's a little concern. I'm not really sure. Maybe we need to do some additional testing. Well, they, they have testing centers in virtually every major city in Georgia. We have one here in Augusta where they can really dive deeper into the evaluation. 
but more importantly, they have the resources then to plug you into different places that can provide some needed support because there's no question that if someone is developing these kind of issues, there are going to be some decisions that need to be made, not only physically, but emotionally, uh, financially, economically. And it's not just the person, it's the caregiver. So there are services that really involve the, the whole family. So this Georgia Memory Net is really a awesome, awesome thing that we have available here that really needs to be utilized by anyone who's experiencing and concern that a loved one may be beginning to have some issues. And the point of entry is the primary care. The primary care physician is the one who feeds you into that system. And once you're into that system, it just opens up to these resources that are available to each and every one of us in the state. There was a question about bone density tests. When should women have bone densities and do, where do you get them? A bone density is simply the gold standard for evaluating for a condition called osteoporosis, brittle bones. And it's a incredibly common condition, especially as women age. You actually start losing bone at about age 35. Bone is a very dynamic tissue. It's not just dead like you see on a, think of in a skeleton. It's just sitting there and it's just hard like a rock. No, bone is very, very dynamic and active. There's cells that are chewing up bone and cells that are laying new bone down. So it's constantly being broken down and turned around and, and reconstituted. And there comes a point where all the little guys chewing up the bone outweigh the little guys building the bone. It's like the, the, the eaters are way out, out working the, the bricklayers and you begin to see a net decline in bone. And for women, that starts at about 35 and men too, by the way, but it really accelerates after the menopause. That's when you start seeing an increased risk for things like fractures. And that's the bugaboo of osteoporosis. Nobody cares. Who cares if you had osteoporosis if you didn't have fractures? That's the real bad guy. That's why we don't like it because in people who fracture their hip, 30 to 40% of folks will be dead within a year. I mean, it's that big a deal because it creates all kinds of secondary problems like immobility, which leads to blood clots, which leads to other. So just know that it's a big deal. And virtually all of us know someone who has been older, who's fallen and broken a hip. And that was the beginning of the end, so to speak. So it's something we don't take lightly because there's a bunch of stuff we can do about it. And there are ways of checking the bones. There's a lot of times if you go to these health fairs where they'll take your blood pressure and they'll measure your height and your weight and give you a BMI calculation. Well, they also have these little things called heel ultrasounds where you stick your foot and it measures the bone density in the heel. Well, those are okay, but they're really, it's really not ideal. It gives you a hint of what's going on. But the gold standard is the bone densiometry. It's called a DEXA scan. And that's has to be done in an, in an office setting. It's just a, it's a very quick, painless. You lay on this thing and this little, little guy runs, not a guy, a little machine runs across you. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes. Very simple, very minimal x-ray exposure. It's an x-ray, but it's less than a chest x-ray, so it's no big deal. And it tells you what your, it gives you a number and tells you what your risks are because that number 
the, the worse that number is, the more chances are statistically that you could have a fracture, whether it's in the spine, which is a bit, see all these little old ladies walking around all tumped over, all hooped over like that? Well, that's because they've had spinal fractures from osteoporosis, and that's what you want to prevent. Uh, the big issue is with the hips. Uh, those are probably the two most common areas that we see problems with. So the bone density is a very, very simple test that can detect that. So who, who should get that? Medicare will begin to pay for that at, at Medicare age at 65. There are certain risk factors that make it more likely for people to have problems with their bones. Things like thyroid disorder, uh, people who are inactive, people who are of a certain, uh, we know that women of Asian descent have higher risk, people who are thin. You know, this is the one area where being thin ain't that great. Not that I want you to get overweight just to prevent osteoporosis, but we, we know that people who are very thin tend to have higher incidence of osteoporosis. Caucasian women have a higher incidence when compared to African-American and some other, uh, other demographics. So people who are at high risk, people who are on chronic steroids, like for asthma, people who have been on certain types of chemotherapy. Those are high-risk people. We tend to recommend that they get bone densities a little bit earlier. Unfortunately, insurance companies are just butts because they are not real good about covering bone densities unless you meet XYZ criteria. But a lot of times, if you're at high risk, we can get it covered for you in, in, in an earlier age before 65. The other big risk factor is family history. If, you're, if your mama was a little creaky, tipped over a bunch of fractures or was known to have osteoporosis, yeah, you, you have a higher risk than the general population. We, unfortunately, that's one of the areas that the buddy scum monkey uh, insurance companies won't allow us to do things too much earlier, uh, but it's definitely something you got to be aware of. Uh, so generally, we'll start, depending on each individual situation, uh, 60, 65, somewhere in that range earlier if you have problems. And there's no real guidelines as to about how often to do them. There's a lot of different guidelines published by different organizations, but the majority of them say, eh, don't really know. Should I do them every year? No. Should you do them every two years? We don't know. Every three years? I don't know. Every five years? I who cares. So we really don't know. We base it on the previous values. So if you get a bone density that shows you're getting close, you're real close to that osteoporosis, it's what we call osteopenia, then we may be more aggressive at checking a bone density sooner than we would later. So we base it on the previous result. So again, remember the triad to prevent bone problems, the triad is adequate calcium and vitamin D, and there's some micronutrients, but we won't go into that. Calcium, vitamin D, weight-bearing exercise, basically anything but swimming. Swimming is great if you're a dolphin, but it won't help your bones. And the third thing is in people who actually have osteoporosis and have a lot of problems, there's a variety of medications, including estrogens, biphosphonates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera that can be used. So that's that's that. Another question about uh, COVID-19 said, are masks necessary? And I, and I, I bet she wrote this this way. Are masks necessary? I'm getting so tired of wearing this mask. Uh, so I'm, I'm having to put the emotion in it because I want you to really understand the gist of the question. Are masks necessary or not? I like the way she said that, or not. Are masks necessary or not? Um, when going out, I'm so tired of differing opinions, me too, and not knowing the best thing to do. It's a great question, and, and it's one that's very timely and very topical. My response, 
Remember, and we've talked about this before, about it, it's really worth remembering. Masks are not to protect you. Masks are to protect everyone else. So I view wearing masks in public right now as an act of kindness. You're looking out for the other guy. We know that there is some evidence that by you wearing a mask, yes, it may reduce. If somebody comes up and sneezes in your face, you're going to probably get a little less in the way of droplets on that part of your body covered by the mask. Is that going to help? Uh, probably not. Like anything else that dissipates, the, the you know, we know that the law of, of gaseous diffusion that it's going to, the gas or whatever is going to fill the space it involves. So that that's what the six foot rule is. The farther away you are from someone, the more protected you are if they, you know, if that right in your direction, right? Uh, if you're wearing a mask, then you might reduce the load, but truly it's, it's not considered protective unless you have one of the N95s or you're using all the other gear that you use in the hospitals. So the true use of mask out in public right now is in case you are one of those asymptomatic shedders that you may be in the early stages and are not symptomatic yet, and you could potentially be a carrier and transmit it, you are looking out for the other guy. That's what that accomplishes at this, at this stage. And I think as we go forward, a lot of mask use right now is psychologically benefiting people. They feel better when they see folks around them with, with masks. Outside, I don't think it makes much sense. When I go out and run or I'm out exercising outside, I'm not wearing a mask. Uh, but when I'm going to the grocery store or when I'm in the office, Yes, I'm wearing a mask right now, and that may change. So just think of it as an act of kindness. You're making sure that people that you come into contact with are going to be okay. There was a question about any new information on treatment, and the, the quick answer is no. There's ongoing studies, and it's exciting some of the information. Here's my prediction. This is the 14th of May at... 632. So here's my prediction. The best treatment for this is going to end up being a cocktail of a variety of medications. It's not going to be one medicine. It's going to be a combination of two or three medications. We're seeing some pretty good information now that looks at combining several antivirals. Everybody hears about remdesivir, uh, and that's showing some promise. But what's really showing promise, especially in very sick people, is this combo uh, of antivirals. So my prediction is that's going to end up being the most effective tool for hospitalized people is this combination of two or three antivirals. And we're really seeing some very beneficial studies preliminarily with that. So we're making progress on that as we are making progress on the uh, vaccine. And you can go back and look at the video we did uh, a while back on vaccines to kind of get up to date on that. Nothing's really changed there. A fascinating study that's ongoing right now is looking at possibly estrogen use decreasing the, the virulence of the symptoms of people. Very, very interesting epidemiological studies looking at people who are put on ventilators. They were finding that especially in premenopausal women, 
they had a much lower rate of being put on ventilators and getting very, very ill than the same cohort of men. And they factored out, you know, other things like obesity and everything. So there's some thought that estrogen actually may be somewhat protective. We know that there are estrogen receptors in some of the lung cells and there, we know estrogen has a role in modulating inflammatory response. So there's an ongoing study right now where they're actually putting estrogen patches on both men and women who are being treated in the ICUs. And they're doing a randomized controlled study to see if adding estrogen potentially would lower the intensity of the disease. It will be very interesting. This is another example of people, really bright folks, looking at all this information and data and going, hmm, that's really strange. Why are more men than women? What's, you know, besides the fact that women are the superior race, why is there more women than, and they figured that that because of the physics, they put the, the observation and the uh, science together and said, well, maybe it's because of estrogen. So let's try that. So that's ongoing. We probably won't know anything for several months with that. So that's the majority of the questions. I think I, I, I lumped a bunch of them together because there were a lot that were similar. So uh, uh, that was the majority of questions. Uh, I just saw the one up here about questions about material to use in filters. Uh, we don't really know. Most of the over-the-counter stuff that you use for filters is not going to reach that threshold of the N95, and all that means is it keeps out 95% of the particles. Uh, the more barriers you put between you and the outside, the better. So virtually anything you use, yes, there's some evidence that that uh, some type of filters work better than fabric filters, and I don't really have a good recommendation there because there's not really any consistent evidence about what, what goes on there. Uh, question about when will be it safe to fly? Uh, boy, I hope soon because I've got a couple of things coming up that I really don't want to cancel. And again, that's not a question that anybody can answer right now. I think that's something that's going to play out week to week. I think a lot of it depends on region. And I think a lot of it depends on the precautions that are be taken by the, the airways. That's really beyond what, what I can say right now, but I know we're all itching to kind of get out there. Well, I know I've been rambling on here, and before I wanted to go ahead, um, uh, there was a question, uh, there's all these questions are coming in now. You guys should have written in beforehand so I could have gotten all these and we would have covered them. I promise you, next time when I call for questions, write them in. Uh, what do you recommend to address inflammation? Uh, any truth to uh, turmeric? Yes, turmeric is, has been shown to be turmeric and cucurbin, which are two of the natural anti-inflammatories that are available on the market. Yes, there's evidence that that can reduce inflammation. Is there any evidence that any herbal product will protect you or reduce the virulence of COVID-19? No, 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 no. No, there is no, and if somebody is trying to sell you an herbal product over the counter that says it reduces inflammation and your, your chances of getting COVID-19, hide your wallet because that's all they're after. It doesn't exist. Now, that being said, there are anti-inflammatory natural substances, omega-3 fatty acids, fish oils, DHA, EPA, turmeric, turmeric. All those things are well known to be anti-inflammatories and they're great for joint discomfort, 
other inf inflammatory conditions uh, like some types of asthma, certainly overuse injuries. We see it as potential for heart disease. Even there's some relationship to dementia we mentioned earlier. But don't be scammed into thinking that something you can get over the counter is either going to be a preventative or a treatment for COVID-19. It ain't going to happen. It's just not out there. So let me take a minute and talk about this viral video, or maybe I should say a video gone viral. That's a better way of putting it. It's kind of, kind of a play on words because it is about the virus, called Plandemic, a, a cute play on words, because at its premise, it says that this was a planned event to help people make a lot of money on things like vaccines. Uh, for those who hadn't seen it, and the reason I'm bringing this up because I probably had eight or nine folks send me the link to this in the last week and ask me for my opinion. So that's why I'm even bringing it up. It is a 28, 29 minute vignette that is meant to be a introduction to a planned full length movie down the road. And at its crux, the best I could get from this first episode, is it is somewhat of a expose on the likelihood that people like Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, the head of the uh, uh, Infectious Disease Institute, and several others like Bill Gates are manipulating ideas and policy to allow them to make a fortune and others to make a fortune. And essentially this video is espousing ideas that say that, 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 say that we are being duped, we're being misled, that the government is uh, not giving us all the information and that they have the knowledge based on their past experience as to what's really happening. And the star of this first uh, episode, Dr. Judy Michael, uh, Mikovits, I want to pronounce that right, Judy Mikovits, is a PhD virologist. Before I really tell you my thoughts about this, I think it's important to understand that there are a lot of people who absolutely despise this video. There's a lot of people who absolutely love this video, and each of them have their reasons. And... Unfortunately, when it comes to analyzing what it's all about, you've got people on one side and on the other side making the same really crazy accusations. So I want to make it clear that I'm not espousing any particular political belief or any... I'm looking at the science. There are two ways to address this information. Number one is looking at the messenger, and number two is looking at the message. Now, I want to be very clear, in looking at the messenger, it's very easy to fall into what we call an ad hominem attack, and that's Latin for against the man, and it's a classic logical flaw when you're criticizing something and you don't have a great argument, you just criticize the messenger. So politicians are great at this. If they oppose a certain bill, they'll, they'll not even talk about the bill. They'll trash the person who's, doing, who's, who's sponsoring the bill. News people are great about this. Uh, there's well, a lot of, everybody's great about that. It's, a, again, a classic ploy. So I want to be very careful that you don't, that I understand that that's an invalid approach if that's the only thing you're talking about. 
I do think it's valid when you look at the background and the qualifications of the person delivering the message. Can somebody who's completely unqualified or who has an agenda say something that's true? Of course they can. I mean, even a broke clock is right twice a day, right? But I think to be able to contextualize and understand the message, you do have to respect and understand the messenger. So the first part of my evaluation was, well, who is this Judy uh, Mikovits? And the research that I did really told me that she was someone very, very steeped in a particular agenda. She is, she is someone who has spoken quite vehemently in the past about her opposition to certain types of vaccines. She was a virologist and her background is, oh, we'll, we'll just, we'll say sketchy at best when it comes to her qualifications. Yes, she's a PhD. She has published papers. She has had papers retracted. She has been discredited in certain areas. And again, remember, this is just to lay the groundwork for the message. But I think you can't view what they're talking about without understanding the person carrying that message. So that's not the, the bulk of my argument with this, with this video as being something truthful and honest and worth your while. I'll spoil it. It's not. But anyway, anyone can, can research Dr. Mikovits, and I will just say that there are questions about her allegiances, her agendas, her background, her past writings. Is it a coincidence that she has a book that she's promoting? I don't know. It might be. I don't know. I, there's no way I can, I can say that, but I think that has to be part of the equation. So let it just rest at the fact that she is not a unsullied messenger. There are some issues with, with the background. So let's look at the science. Let's look at this thing very briefly, we know, I know I'm running long, but I, I think people were interested in this. There was several statements that were made that I independently wanted to research. You know, I was not going to accept just the face value. You know, whenever you think about a conspiracy theory, it's very psychologically very easy to fall into this confirmation bias where if it supports what you already believe, then it's much more likely that you're going to accept it and believe it without being critical. And we all fall into that. We all watch the same news station that we believe is espousing the, the correct point. We all read books that support what we already believe. So it's very easy, and that's why it's so polarized that people who watch this immediately say, yeah, 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 right. They're all, they're all crazy, and they're trying to kill us all, and they're all trying to make money off this. And the people who are on the other side are almost as adamant saying, you know, these, these people are idiots, which I think is wrong on both sides. I think the, the extreme, of it, you know, just, just look at the science. So, for example, she makes a statement that says the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus was manipulated, was created in the lab. That's just not the case. Uh, we have evidence now that the genetic structure of this new coronavirus is just not something that can be created in a laboratory setting. Uh, Nature published an article that talked about the, the makeup of the uh, coronavirus, and it doesn't indicate that its genome was altered. We know now that it, its natural host is, is animals, possibly bats, and that it 
uh, was able to cross vector, as we see this in numerous viruses, into humans. There was a statement about hydroxychloroquine is effective against these family of viruses, talking about coronaviruses, and the studies now are convincing that it might reduce symptoms, which is very far from saying it's effective as a treatment for this coronavirus. In fact, there was a study out of New York just published a few days ago with 1,400 people that showed hydroxychloroquine didn't reduce symptoms and it didn't reduce hospitalizations. Just going by the science. So what, what does this mean? As I'm seeing these things coming out, it's if, if there are statements that are frankly wrong, then it makes me question not just that, but potentially some other things that are being said in this video. Is it possible that some of the things that are being said are correct and right? Absolutely. And that is one of the cardinal, cardinal rules for conspiracy theories, for example, is mix in what is known, what is right, with what is not. And it gets very confusing trying to separate those things out. So a lot of people who are supporting that will point to some things that no one can refute and ignore conveniently the things that are blatantly incorrect. Uh, there was a statement said, if you've ever had a flu vaccine, you were injected with coronaviruses. Absolutely blanket wrong. That's just wrong. And anyone who knows anything about vaccines and what makes up vaccines knows that that's an incorrect statement. So again, there's, there's truths, half-truths, and false, false statements. And when you combine all these things, it creates a picture that can be very confusing. Uh, and those are some of the, the few things that I wanted to mention. I could go on and on. I've, I've spent way too much time in the last three days looking at this, looking at references, looking at secondary references, but I wanted to make sure you understood if you, because 10 million people have seen this video and it's only the beginning. They're going to promote this on and off for the next uh, months until this video, until this full length movie comes out. And if this, if the rest of what's going to come out is the same as it's what's in this video, it's at best bad science and incorrect, at worst manipulation to create misunderstandings and to sell a movie and to sell some books. All right. So that's all I had for today. I hope that makes sense. I hope that gives you some insight into where you are in the world right now. Thank you again for taking the time to watch this and, and spend this time with us. Uh, again, I read every single comment, try to respond to every single comment. It means the world to me. I really, truly mean that. This is, has become such, it's something that I really look forward to. And I hope I'm providing value to you. If there's value here that you see, please tell your friends, tell your family. We want to grow this community. We're going to keep it private because I respect your privacy and I respect the fact that we are a community of where we can be safe. I'm not going to, I made the decision. I've, I've thought about, well, gee, wow, if we open this up, we could just, we could get tens of thousands of people and expose them to this information. But then that just kind of defeated the purpose of what I wanted to accomplish with this. And that's not what this is about. This isn't about numbers. This is about quality, not quantity. Uh, but if you do have people that you know that you want to be a part of this, uh, shoot them to me, and I'd love to have them be a part of this. As we continue to grow, as we continue to support each other, as we continue to take one step in front of each other and look towards the future, knowing that, that this will 
be a transformational experience for all of us. We're all going to look back on this and say, here's what I did during this time frame, and it made me who I am today. So until next Thursday, make healthy choices and be careful of the videos you watch. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eaker at R-E-A-K-E-R at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy.